the McIlvaney Weekly Commentary, covering monetary, economic, and geopolitical news events. Politicians never let a crisis go to waste. Whether it's real or not real, the crises we've seen over a 50-year period, you'd say opportunity is opportunity. If you never imagined modern monetary theory gaining traction, you just don't know how that gets done because it's an absurd idea. There is an existential threat which changes the character of the conversation. It changes the debate on the issue of financial conservatism versus fiscal largesse. Now here are Kevin Oreck and David McIlvaney. Welcome to the McIlvaney Weekly Commentary. I'm Kevin Oreck along with David McIlvaney. Uh, you know, I looked up today before we started because I, I, I had been talking to you about the forever virus. You know, you, you brought that up that uh, in foreign affairs they had an article that, hey, this virus isn't going to go away. There's too many opportunities. They didn't say that part. But uh, <laughs> now we're looking at the forever vaccine because of the Israel studies. And uh, we had the forever war in the Middle East that just suddenly ended. You know, I think there was an awful lot of dependency on the forever war. So with all these forevers, including the forever Fed intervention, emergency intervention, now we're on the 12th or 13th year of the emergency intervention for the the Fed. I looked up songs and just to, I was thinking of some songs, uh, Strawberry Fields Forever, Strawberry Fields Forever, <laughs> and Randy Travis, one of my favorites, Forever and Ever, Amen. Now, I'm, I'm not quite the singer that Randy is. And Kiss had a song called Forever. Bob Dylan had a song called Forever. Can, can for- you sing that song by Kiss? No, <laughs> that one I can't. I can't. Uh, Bob Dylan, Forever Young. So we do have some forevers out there, but... Uh, The forever virus, the forever vaccine, the forever war, the forever Fed intervention. I think we ought to talk about this because what we saw last week, Dave, uh, about a week and a half ago, was what happens when dependency on forever gets taken away. So let's talk about that today if we could. I got to read a little bit of Joseph Tainter's The Collapse of Complex Societies and the things that you think are forever, even mm. empires. He apparently. was a great guest. He was an interesting guest. Uh, that, yeah. that, is, that is one of the archives that'd be worth going back to if, yeah. if you're not going to take the time to order the book and read it. It is, I think, a very important read. But the argument is that there's complexity. And the more complexity there is, the higher the cost to maintain a system where Ultimately, the economics just don't work. And the more complex a society gets, uh, the higher cost to maintain. And ultimately, it just people either move on or it collapses. Well, let's talk about one hundred and twenty billion dollars monthly from the forever Fed intervention. Now, now they can't blame that on employment anymore. Right. Because employment, the the numbers are getting good enough, actually, where the Fed's going to have to come up with another reason to give us that $120 billion forever feed. You know, in July, the monthly employment rate fell to 5.4%. And we've got job vacancies sitting right at around $10 million. Uh, there's a Harvard economist, Jason Furman. Uh, the Financial Times was quoting him, and, and he said, I have yet to find a blemish in this jobs report. I've never seen such a wonderful set of economic data. And the Fed is going, shut up, shut up. And this is a guy who teaches the dismal science, and he's almost enthusiastic. I've never seen such a wonderful set of economic data. (laughs) He sounds like an evangelist. Wow. The key here is that the Fed 
has lost justification for maintaining that $120 billion in monthly purchases. Hmm. Yeah. So, yes, COVID cases have risen. Yes, Chinese markets offer, you know, sort of consideration for turmoil in the credit markets. And then, of course, you've got Taiwan, which presents headaches for the U.S. State Department. Yes, you have economic data, which suggests slowing of uh, global economic activity as well as U.S. economic activity. Uh, and, and there's no abatement of inflation pressures. So, you know, you bring those two things together, stagflation trends are gaining momentum. And there you have the Fed wanting an allowance to stay full QE engaged while at the same time needing to make plans to taper and, and, and sort of give enough of a lead time so the markets don't freak out when and if they do. Dave, we were down the street at a hotel. Uh, I remember when we had the taper tantrum a few years ago and the Fed decided that they were going to taper and the stock market just went kapoosh. It just went kapooey. And uh, they called it the taper tantrum. We as a company actually had an afternoon meeting down at the hotel, like I said, down at the, the bottom of the hill. And we, but they had a TV on. And you should have seen the faces of the, the commentators. You know, you weren't there, but we were we were watching the TV going, oh, I think we need to get back to the office. There is a true change in the market. <laughs> so Ken Powell, I mean, Powell's going to be talking at the Jackson Hole meeting here soon. Uh, what's he going to say? I mean, can he actually start talking? About taper. Right. You have Powell's comments at Jackson Hole. I don't think they're likely to be radical in nature. That doesn't mean that the markets can't pout, Mm. uh, maybe even throw a tantrum. But August 27th is around the corner. That's the meeting. Uh, Market players are going to watch for a shift in time frames for the elimination of support to the mortgage-backed securities market and the treasury market. It's worth noting that the Fed now owns 64% of 10-year treasuries and is is influential controlling roughly 75% of the treasury market uh hmm. wow <laughs> makes the bond market almost irrelevant makes it european for sure <laughs> yeah. yeah well um the fed's financial stability report in the second quarter um we made mention of this in hard asset insights last friday uh, again a good read if you want sort of a a weekend take a one page summary from our asset management crew The financial stability report in the second quarter noted that the combination of stretched valuations with very high levels of corporate indebtedness bear watching because of the potential to amplify the effects of a repricing event. I love how they word things. Okay, what they're talking about is a repricing event. What is a repricing event, Dave? That sounds like a crash. Uh, that's correct. Yeah. That's correct. A repricing event. <laughs> Amplified effects of a repricing event. Yeah. I spent a little time reading through the Bank of International Settlements quarterly review. Um, there were some really interesting things from the first quarter, a uh, topic that I, I thought fit the theme of amplification. And that was their their coverage of bond ETFs. Hmm. Well, let me ask you a question. I can understand an ETF for something that's very narrow. Okay. There are even gold and silver ETFs. Bonds, there's a number of types of bonds out there. How do you have an ETF that can just index the bond market and have liquidity with all those bonds? And that, I think, is the issue because not all ETFs are frail or flawed in their design. Uh, but bond ETFs are a curious financial construction, hmm. uh, which appear to be fragile and virtually guarantee further Fed purchases and fixed income because of the implicit price amplification of illiquid holdings within the products hmm. themselves. So you don't have a uniformity. I think, I think one of the things that you could say about, say, the uh, S&P 500 
ETF is that it's fairly straightforward. You understand there's a number of things that go into the basket at the same thing every time. And so what is the S&P 500 ETF? It's the S&P 500. What is a bond ETF? Well, you don't always have access to the same bonds in quantity when you need to expand the holdings. Uh, there's a difference in maturities. There's a difference in credit qualities. Those things are constantly in flux. So the complexity goes up dramatically. And I wonder how large that market is, because going back to 2008, the crash, I don't even think bond ETFs existed. So wh- wh- where are they now? Yeah, the, the first exchange-traded fund was launched in the 80s, I believe. Okay, so they did exist, but it must have been a small market. But the bond market didn't really embrace the ETF construction until a lot later. If you go back to 2009, the total market of bond ETFs was at about $10 billion. Mm-hmm. So nothing to sneeze at. But now that market has expanded in scale to roughly $1.2 trillion. Serious money. So again, when we talk about the financial construction, the fragility, and the idea that the Fed would have to step in, a part of it is because scale has changed, right? And, and there is, of course, inside of these ETFs, illiquid assets. So someone's going to get caught holding the bag when someone wants liquidity. Is it going to be the market makers? Is it going to be the individual investor? And that's where what we saw in 2020 was basically a smoothing over of a disaster in real time. Hmm. So scale of the market is a consideration for any regulator or, uh, you know, if you're talking about those who are regulating currency and credit, your central banks. And this is obviously a part of what's noted in this uh, report by the Bank of International Settlements. But more than scale is the difference between the underlying assets. Uh, you can have the value and, and, and the price at which they trade, two very different things. So no one minds a variance if you're talking about a premium. Right. So you've you've got the basic assets in the basket. And if they sell at a premium, a dollar asset selling for a dollar ten, nobody minds. But when the variance is lower, you end up with sort of destabilization, a dollar asset selling for 90 cents. Who wants to take the 10 cent hit? <laughs> right. So last spring, this forced the hand of the Fed. Uh, so this is, again, 2020. And nothing's changed since then in terms of the construction of bond ETFs that do continue to grow in scale. But we can easily anticipate a repeat performance. Over a trillion dollars in bond ETFs. But the quandary there is most bonds are supposed to be held to maturity. So this isn't a short-term trading vehicle. What are the mechanics of a bond ETF and how do they manage that? And yet that is what is implied in the ETF structure where you have instant liquidity with the click of a mouse. Sure. And yet there's these entities behind the mouse click, which are very important. You have your market makers, you have your authorized participants, and these are groups that create the baskets that hold the underlying assets for purchase by the retail or institutional investor. And they're the ones who could get caught holding the bag. But there's also some incentive for them to do what they do. They get to look for the premiums and discounts on all the assets in the basket and arbitrage the difference away. Arguably, this creates liquidity. Arguably, there is a a motive for them to step in and be the market maker, taking some risk and pocketing the difference as profit, right? The gaps are small with other forms of ETFs. You were talking about commodity ETFs and stock ETFs. You know, total ETF market's about $7 trillion. So this is this $1.2 trillion, the bond segment of it. And this is where all of a sudden you see the gaps are larger. Liquidity is a lot less. 
And again, we've mentioned this in previous commentaries. The ETF structure designed for shorter term trades is mismatched with an investment in fixed income, which is meant as you mentioned a minute ago, to be held usually to maturity. Okay, but it sounds to me like someone with special knowledge. I, I keep going back to the story that Jim Deeds told us when he first started in the municipal bond industry. Remember that? Jim would tell the story of how he went into the office and there were stacks of municipal bonds all through the CEO's office of this uh, company that he was interviewing for. And they were municipal bonds that were waiting to find a home. And what this guy did was he just basically bought them. You know, they, they bought them, they held them, and then they, they were market makers. That's what a market maker does. But it sounds to me like in 1.2 trillion ETFs, are they really matched for bonds unless you have a forever Fed that'll just come in and buy it all? Well, and, and this is where some of the complexity gets very interesting. As it turns out, the baskets that are created to help maintain liquidity for the bond ETFs they have to change up what goes into the basket very routinely. Huh. It's not your, you know, rubber stamp products ABC, just like the last time. It might be XYZ, it might be ITF, it might be whatever. Limited availability of exactly similar product is a constraint when demand is high. And on the other side of the equation, limited liquidity for the underlying assets become the mirror-like issue when liquidations pick up. So, so you're telling me that the basket may not even be what people think that they're holding. So tomato, tomato, potato. That's right. Potato stands in for tomato. And you thought you were ordering a tomato, right? That's what you thought you were. But the baskets that trade have only a small percentage of what they are actually supposed to have in them. Wow. So again, we go back to the authorized participant and the market makers. They agree on a case-by-case -case basis, if the assets offered in substitute for the original model, if you will, are sufficient substitutes, hmm. right? So given the, given the wide range of credit quality, maturity differences within the fixed income space, this is an ad hoc settlement with no automaticity, right? And, and this raises a really key issue for me because structurally, the authorized participant is there to create baskets for increased demand, or on the other side of the equation, fill the middleman role as redemptions occur, buying back in the product, right? Ultimately selling off the underlying assets. But the arbitrage role, listen to this, the arbitrage role is not a contractual obligation. They can step away. Okay, but I'm still, I'm still thinking about this substitution, okay? If you don't actually have the product, you come up with something that's acceptable. I'll, I'll never forget uh, when my daughter was first born. My wife was in the toy store and there was a Taco Bell right next to the toy store. And uh, I heard on the speaker that they had run out of refried beans. Well, there is no substitute, Dave. Okay, when Taco Bell runs out of refried beans, it was hilarious because these people would pull through and they're like, sorry, sir, we're out of refried. They'd let them order first. And then they'd say, sorry, sir, we're out of refried beans. And there would be this unbelieving pause. How does Taco Bell run out of run out of beans. refried beans? But that's what we're talking about here. I mean, if you've got a group of guys who are just sitting around going, you know, we don't have the right bond, but this will do. 
Well, it's like the authorized participants who put these baskets together have learned from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Substitutions <laughs> are totally appropriate. If meat's too expensive, like, you know, you can't afford red meat anymore, that's fine. We'll go to lamb. Uh, hold the pickles. Oh, hold the lettuce. Meat. Special orders don't upset us. You yeah. know, what's the other white meat? Pork. What's the other white meat? Maybe it's chicken legs. I mean, How is this goes... different than a garage sale guy who just, where his specialty is to just buy something cheap and try to sell it for more? I don't know. This whole ETF thing on bonds, I, I guess I hadn't been paying attention. The reality is you don't know what's in the sausage and the recipe is constantly changing. Hmm. And I, to me, it is, a, it is a little bit like a Saturday morning garage sale guy. I, right. I know I, Drew, you know, Drew. Drew for years was the Saturday morning garage sale guy. Well, let's call it. It was more estate sales. True. Okay. I think that was the word. No, that's used. true. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. No, if, yeah. in fairness. And, you know, you step in and you find pricing differences. Right. Maybe you see something that's too cheap. You buy it. Right. And maybe you're going to use it. Maybe you're going to resell it at the right price. But mm. you recognize that there was a difference between what it was worth and what it was offered for. And so you fill the gap. So that it's the Saturday morning arbitrage. That's what these guys are there to do. Mm. In the bond ETF, the middleman buyer has limitations like the garage sale. Sorry estate sale hunter you can't <laughs> buy right. everything yeah. and sometimes you don't want to buy anything but that's not how the bond etf is structured it implies immediate liquidity with the click of a mouse even though the underlying assets are not always sellable hmm. so lots of games lots of substitutions in the baskets ultimately lots of reasons for the bank of international settlements to care in fact, I can count the reasons. 1.2 trillion reasons. Well, and they don't count on guys like you reading these reports. The Bank of International Settlements is sort of the bank for banks, right? And so they're writing this is sort of an inside professional document. It's helpful to appreciate where the risks lie. And if you're in the financial markets, you need to appreciate what can blow up in your face and where pressures can emerge. And, you know, for me, this dies back to Jackson Hole and this idea that we're going to end involvement in interventions in the market that the 120 billion dollars if it ends this weekend or three weeks from now i think the fed is right back at it and a part of it is because you've got products within the financial market which necessitate a smoothing over because again if it your necessitates role, forever fed exactly and if right. your role in the market is to be the arbitrage guy step in and create these baskets but you don't have to if you don't want to and if it looks like you're going to lose your shorts you can just step back from the market. Then there's no liquidity for these implied liquid products. Then what happens? Well, right. it requires the Fed to step in. So again, scale is an issue. Scale is a concern for the Bank of International Settlements. The assets under management of corporate bond ETFs. And again, there's, there's a variety of bond ETFs. Just looking at corporate bonds, this is up 13 times. 13 times over the past 10 years. So just in corporate bonds, it's $300 billion. Let's not forget that, you know, S&P Global counts all of your corporate debt, not just the stuff that gets put into ETFs, but all of your corporate debt. S&P Global counts the year-to-date sales, uh, low-rated corporate debt at about $650 billion. Corporations are issuing debt like you cannot believe. And only a part of that gets stuffed into bond ETFs. Well, we saw in Europe really since 2011 that they just, the European Central Bank just came in and bought everything. They just bought all the bonds. I mean, this seems similar to Europe. It is. And you see similar growth trends in terms of the bond ETFs, sovereign bond ETFs, 
corporate bond ETFs, high yield ETFs, similar growth trends in terms of consumer demand, investor demand for those products, which means that the weaknesses of those structures are also within the European financial markets, just as they are here in the U.S. Financial okay, so market. we we birthed probably the actual device. And now it's growing right. into Europe and other markets. Yeah. So an, an unhealthy willingness to take risk with a product that cannot provide liquidity is implied by its structure, right? And it lies to me, this is, this is really what's, what's unhealthy is, is that the participants have been given the opportunity through this arbitrage game to deal with exceedingly illiquid assets. And to make a killing. So th there's a reason why you want to continue to see growth in these assets, even though they're structurally unstable, structurally unsound. You want to see them grow if you're an authorized participant. Why? Because there's a lot of money to be made trading illiquid assets and creating your own baskets and forging your own substitutions for what goes into the baskets. That arbitrage game is a rich game. And it's so rich that you're having hedge funds step in and say, well, we'll do this on a contract basis for an authorized participant. We'll do this job for you. There's a lot of juice in it. So the bid-ask spreads, the difference between what you can buy something and sell something, the bid-ask spreads on investment grade and on high-yield bonds are multiples higher than you find with stocks. So what we're talking about spread, folks, is the cost of participating. If you're the guy who's buying, right? Exactly. If you're the retail investor, right. there's a difference between you, what you can buy something and sell something. And, and again, in the bond market, that spread is so much wider than in stocks that, again, it's it. this is what is enticing for financial institutions to construct and sell on to an unwary public mm -hmm. with the opportunity to play with the assets and the baskets that they create. Right. In the largest bond ETFs, this is from the BIS report, in the largest bond ETFs, as little as 3% of the assets in the basket match what is published as the holdings. So, oh my gosh. So, tomato, tomato. Potato, zucchini. But potato corn. yeah, is 97%. And where's the tomato? 3%. Yeah, what goes into the soup. So, the latitude to negotiate what goes in and at what price appears to me a significant flaw. You think? <laughs> and, and to me, this is sort of a huge and shady world of, yes, it's arbitrage, but I would call it arbitrary mm -hmm. arbitrage. Yeah. Flawed in part because of the voluntary nature of the process. And, and this is where investors have a lot of risk. And they don't understand that they're taking. If the creation or redemption of shares occurs typically over a two to four day period, which seems like a long time to create these baskets. When we live in the age of nanoseconds. Markets can already have experienced a significant change for the worse, and market makers are left to scramble, create the baskets, or maybe they simply sit on their hands and do nothing. I mean, if things get bad enough, normally they are the provider of liquidity. Abnormally, you just sit on your hands and wait for the cavalry. You don't have to play. You typically would. But you can simply back away if losses appear too great. That is, if the underlying assets have diverged too far, from the net asset value, from the nav of the fund, guess what? It's a game of heads I win, tails you lose. And the 2020 Fed bond ETF interventions, 
They've already demonstrated this. It's not like this is theoretical. We watched this happen in 2020, and we've changed nothing. We've changed nothing as we come into 2021. You know, you bring up complexity and tainter, and I'm thinking of Bushstaber because uh, we live in a day and age, Dave, where the underlying asset, okay, we again, I'm going to go back tomato, tomato, potato, and 97% is the potato or something else, and the tomatoes, which you thought you were buying, is 3%. But the thing is, there's always, there are always derivative products out there. So it's like the tip of a whip. You know, I, I didn't know this till somebody explained it, but when you hear the crack of a whip, it's because it's breaking the speed of sound. It's at the very end, and that's where the speed is actually happening. When you hear that, you're hearing a sonic boom when you hear the crack of a whip. Well, derivatives are that sonic boom. They're out on the end of the whip. If, if you're thinking about these ETFs as just the handle and the whip part, what happens with the derivatives of something? This doesn't even make sense yeah, to Yeah, so me. you've got the bond ETFs, which are structurally unsound. They're not matched up in terms of the liability structure, the liquidity structure. and Then, then you, you've got the Vegas bet, which is the derivative. That's right. You yeah. layer on puts and call options on those ETFs. So you can now leverage a bet on the underlying asset. But oops, we thought the underlying asset was potatoes. No, tomatoes. You said tomatoes. And it turns out to be potatoes. Right. <laughs> this is where it gets a little crazy. And you said zucchini squash. Okay, okay, but what we're talking about, these are considered investment grade, right? I mean, you're going to have pension funds investing in this, assuming that they're buying double-A bonds. Right. Well, I, I think this is one of the last things that you've got to keep in mind with the bond market in general has this problem. But it again, we come back to this notion of amplification of volatility. Investment-grade products, the holdings have a value based partially on supply and demand. Mm -hmm. But there's further complexity when you're talking about bonds because you're talking about maturity risk, inflation risk, credit quality. These are all the things that go into whether or not something is considered investment-grade or more speculative in the high-yield or, or junk category. When an investment-grade obligation gets demoted, again, we're talking about a corporate obligation – and we know any corporation can see a fundamental change or a deterioration in their earnings or their profitability or their debt ratios, and they can be reappraised. So they once were a good bet, now they're a bad bet. They once were investment grade, now they've been demoted to a junk status or something like that. When that happens, those obligations can fall out of one category, investment grade into junk, and they're repriced Accordingly, hmm. we, we come back to, again, the Fed's comments in their financial stability report, the combination of stretched valuations with very high levels of corporate indebtedness, bear watching because of the potential to amplify the effects of a repricing event. Well, one of the repricing events that can happen is strictly within the financial markets where you get a downgrade and all of a sudden you have more supply of crappy paper than you were expecting. Well, and I can't help but go back to those pictures that we saw last Sunday uh, on August 15th of the U.S. presence coming out of Afghanistan. Yeah, what had happened was that whole structure only worked keeping the Taliban back as long as there was a U.S. presence. And so when we talk about forever fed, you're talking about repricing, but there are events when there is a forever commitment Look at corporations, Dave. Corporations, they can borrow so cheap right now. And look at the leverage that these corporations are bringing. Well, why? It's because the forever Fed, the, the forever U.S. presence in Afghanistan being pulled out, the forever presence of the Fed. You take them out, there's a consequence. Yes, which means 
they want to be forever. You talked about the 120 billion. They can't taper. Right. <laughs> How can they taper? Well, and when they do and the consequences are felt, then all of a sudden you're talking about redeployment, not of troops, right? As we might have to do in Kabul, right. just to keep things from falling to pieces. But we're talking about redeployment of capital. So wow. corporations have been leveraging up. They've been adding more debt to their balance sheets on highly accommodative terms. We have to assume that the terms get more restrictive going forward if indeed the central bank community is going to taper. You know, and, and that means they quit buying everything, including the kitchen sink. Ergo, the financing options of corporations, they look more restrictive, they're costly. We're tempting fate with larger quantities of debt downgrades and slippage in what products are appropriately stuffed into the ETF baskets. Well, it sounds just like Bookstubber. Okay, as soon as you create some regulation, there's going to be some product that works around it. And then... You have a new vulnerability, a new complexity. You talked about Tainter, Bookstopper. Both of those guys are experts in complexity and the failure of complexity. Bookstopper's participated in several uh, failures in the markets, and he's been called in as an expert to create the next regulation. So is the bottom line that the Fed may wish to exist in intervention mode from this point forward i mean i would hate to say it is <laughs> it like a drug company like pfizer it's like well uh, yeah. sounds like job security sounds like good visibility on earnings you know <laughs> why hey, don't we have a forever vaccine well, for, for the Christ markets christina paget is at moody's okay and she says if you take a forward view there are many more companies that are fragile they've layered on a lot of debt and she asked these questions. What if growth slows beyond what was anticipated when the balance sheet was structured? Hmm. What if real rates rise or inflation remains higher for longer than we think? What may be manageable given today's outlook could be unsustainable in a higher cost or lower growth environment? And Christina is head of leveraged finance research at Moody's and I agree with her concerns. The bottom line is the Fed may wish to exit the intervention mode it's been in for so long now, and they may get to do so temporarily. But the financial markets have engineered a backdrop and a structure and with products that get placed under real pressure the second that they do. Well, they won't even survive without that structure, that new complex structure of Fed intervention. And it requires the infinite check-writing capacity of the central banks, again, due to this inherent fragility. Okay, so don't you think that's why speculators are so bold? They understand Absolutely. the Fed's got their back. I mean, it's like, go ahead, yeah, try to taper. Absolutely. This is moral hazard perfected. Knowing this, you have market speculators who invest more boldly in the fragile assets, believing the central bank community has its own set of fears and nightmares and, and, and the unknown outcomes of liquidation, the unknown outcomes of market selling, what that brings in is the assumption of intervention. Mm -hmm. What happens is you, you begin to see price support is the given in the market equation. Belief that the Fed and other central banks are trapped in that way serves to amplify risk taking. Mm adding to structural weakness. This is what stood out to me coming through that BIS study. Bond ETFs exist in a world of moral hazard perfected. Yesterday, I did an IRA rollover with uh, one of my clients. He's adding to his gold, really sharp guy. He's uh, about 20 years younger than me, uh, but he's got quite a bit in the stock market still. 
he's very, very open-eyed about what's going on. He listens to the commentary. He's probably listening right now. Andrew, you know who you are, but I'm just telling you, Dave, there are a lot of people out there who understand the fragility. They understand the risk and they've tasted the profits and they're like, you know what? It's kind of nice. I'm willing to take the risk because I think they've got my, I'll, I'll add some gold here and there. And he's doing that. But he's staying in the market because he understands they're trapped. And there's also this underlying belief that I think I can still get out in time. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> yeah. Uh, just to yeah. clarify, you know, the disdain expressed today for ETFs is limited to bond ETFs. Stock ETFs are much sounder in their construction. Okay. It's a totally different animal. And right. again, we're talking about the underlying assets that go into these bags. It's not the ETF structure that's your no, problem. No, it's, it's what they it's, put in it. Exactly. I mean, think about this. Have you ever gone to order a milkshake and ordered a spinach milkshake? Sounds no, disgusting. I haven't, doesn't I haven't it? done that, Dave. That Thanks. sounds disgusting. Yeah. I mean, you just don't do that. It's strawberry, it's chocolate, it's vanilla. Like, there's certain things that don't go in a milkshake. Spinach is one of them. Kale? Would you put <laughs> kale in a milkshake? And that's basically what I'm saying is, no, you don't put bonds in an ETF and expect good things to happen. Okay, but we're seeing a divergence in the stocks versus commodities because, you know, you would talk about risk on, I mean, new terminology because this wasn't always the terminology. 30 years ago, we didn't talk about risk on, risk off. That's become part of the vernacular. It was just a bull market or a bear market. Exactly. And it was either a structural bull market as in it lasted a long time or a cyclical bull market, meaning it was just a short little guy. Okay. But what's happening to the risk on, risk off market in the commodities? Because I think people are looking at something other than just- Last yeah. week's commodity volatility was off the charts. Yeah. It was off the charts. And, you know, you look at the oil markets. This is a huge market. We can look at things from a couple different vantage points. But oil production numbers in the U.S., those do continue to creep higher. Over the past year, the rig count has doubled off the lows. Half of the total is still coming from the Permian Basin. And domestic sources of oil production have now risen from 9.7 to 11.3 million barrels per day. So we're up about 16.5%. From a year ago, August. So more supply. Yep, yeah, more supply. But last week's 10% slide in crude prices had far more to do with concerns of demand destruction than supply Are excess. Are they thinking the, the virus? Well, so that's, I think you've got demand destruction from COVID, potentially, and of particular note from a slowdown in China. These definitely pressured oil, but you also had the industrial commodities selling off. Most of your soft commodities were selling off. You had a singular exception. This was really interesting to watch last week's behavior. The commodities complex basically got lit up with the exception of gold, and it was the standout for stability. I mean, we're talking about commodities off 5, 10. In the case of palladium, it was almost 15%. And gold's positive for the week. Yeah, that was interesting to see the resilience of gold. Yeah. There's, there's a message being conveyed. Safe haven status. And, and let me say, there's a couple of key technical levels. We need to get above the 200-day moving average. We need to fill the gap that's just above where the price is today. And if we do, we've got a significant run ahead of us. Okay. And, and, and we're very close to that. It hasn't happened. But that technical confirmation would be incredibly constructive, incredibly constructive. And this is a really tricky period of time because you look at the currency markets and if there is any weakness in European equities, Chinese equities, 
all of a sudden the currency markets start to reflect this and you may have dollar strength. Well, if you have dollar strength, does that compute to gold weakness? Ordinarily it would. And these cross currents uh, are really interesting to be watching right now. Yeah, it's interesting. When you talk about 200-day moving averages on uh, like the gold price, for me, that's not that important to me. And the reason is, is because in the long run, I've done this 34 years, I realize that gold's the only real safe 4,000-year history hedge that I can invest in. And, and so when I see something like a week and a half ago with Afghanistan, I'm not thinking Afghanistan. I'm thinking China. Right. I, I start sure. worrying about the larger scale tensions in the Longer world when, when they see how inept we are. What is China and Taiwan right now? I mean, yep. is, is that a future fear? Sometimes I, I don't mention things like that because we've covered it elsewhere. Like this last week in, in the Credit Bubble Bulletin, right. Doug right. does a great job of looking at some of the issues still lingering with not only the credit markets, but also uh, the cross currents into international relations in US, China, Taiwan relations. So, I mean, we've hardly had a mention of China today, really. Uh, but this is in the context of a news cycle that includes both the broadening of corporate crackdowns, which yeah. is a very big deal, uh, the increase of pressure on the wealthy. And the Financial Times actually ran an article basically saying China's Gilded Age is over. It's come to an end. Hmm. And, and hmm. then, of course, you've got the tensions between Taiwan and the mainland, which have hit a boil. Beijing recognizes the Biden administration is operating on its heels with a very high level of incompetence as yeah. it relates to Afghanistan. So there's room right now to push a Taiwan agenda. We'll see how far they go. All these factors were reflected in the commodity sell-off. Okay, and we have to remember China still is a command and control economy. They just, they reshape what communism looks like at different times. I've had long conversations. In fact, a few years ago, my dad and I would argue about this. He would say, we're, we're seeing more characteristics of capitalism in China than we do in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And I'd say, well, yeah, I don't think it'll last. I think, you know, you taught me this. <laughs> you can trust a communist to be a communist. Right. And you'd say, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. It is an ideology that they have a really hard time getting rid of. 600 million Chinese live off a monthly income of $154. That's 600 million. That's double our, double our total <laughs> population lives off of roughly $154 a month you also have over a thousand of the world's billionaires in China. So more than you find in the U.S. In terms of the distribution of billionaires, there's more there than here. Xi has announced that common prosperity, that's kind of his catchphrase these days, common that's in prosperity. Quotes, common prosperity. That's a fresh goal in China. Hmm. And at Chatham House, group out of, of London, uh, says there's a sea change in the way the Chinese Communist Party sees its legitimacy. At stake is the CCP's social contract with China's people. If the party defends the current status quo, that is manifestly unfair in its distribution of wealth and opportunity. Trust from the ordinary people will collapse. And so this is where you see Xi Jinping really dialing in uh, with a laser focus, who will be in the hot seat going forward, right? Xi said this last week, they need to regulate excessively high incomes and encourage high income groups and enterprises to return more to society. And so what we're talking about is increased focused income tax, focused real estate tax and death tax, what we have as an inheritance tax. So things that have been unfamiliar to the Chinese to this point we started to invent and perfect 
in the early 20th century. Uh, 1913 to 1917 was a period of time where all of a sudden the idea of an income tax, we, we actually saw the, the, the first formal iteration of it, believe it or not, in the Communist Manifesto, where <laughs> it, it, we just need to equalize. Well, I, I believe it. 1913, that was not a good year for America, okay, no. between the Federal Reserve and the introduction of the income tax. But I want to go back to what you talked about last week, though, because there are a number of factors right now. There is a fragility because there is this attitude of forever everything, okay, whether it's, you know, you, you mentioned the forever virus, the forever vaccine, the forever fed, forever U.S. involvement in various theaters that won't hold together if we pull out. So, you know, we talked about moods changed and a mood ring. Remember a mood ring when you were a little kid? Okay, mood rings, you know, if they were blue, you were calm, everything was holding together. If they were red, you were under stress and it could change fairly quickly. Well, that's right. The market mood. And as an investor, you look at the things that can shift from positivity to negativity, from a bull market dynamic of growth and expectations of higher prices to a bear market dynamic where you expect the opposite. Yeah. And it can happen for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. Disappointed expectations come in a variety of iterations. Well, how about COVID? It's, you know, the reopening versus closures. That's obviously a big one in terms of expectations because we've put a lot of hope in what has been a, a tough experience for a 12-month period. Yeah, but it's just all those people who won't get the vaccine, now, Dave. Well, we've got COVID cases are up, and that is one aspect. The U.S. political view carried by the media is that the unvaxxed are responsible for this. And, and you know, that's fair to a degree. But I think you also have to see some portion of that as, as risible and highly politicized when you consider, for instance, the fourth wave in Israel. Fourth wave in Israel, more than 80% of the population is vaccinated. And the increase is coming from vaccinated people, as reported by the Financial Times. So you've got the Sheba hospitals, the largest hospital chain in Israel. Top official there said, it's quite alarming. After around six months, we realized that the level of antibodies in our staff was falling. And across Israel, there was an increase in the number of patients. And then this was happening in parallel with the Delta variant. Okay, but everything's going to change because day before yesterday, the FDA, the FDA came and approved the Pfizer. Right. And, and they moved it from an emergency status, which I think opens the doors for here in the U.S., the workplace requirements. And I do think that with that will come lawsuits, um, HIPAA disclosure issues, EEOC concerns, retaliation charges when someone's let go because they weren't. I mean, so all of this complexity here in the U.S. is coming in late 2021 and 2022. But you have the Israeli Health Ministry's studies, which are showing the Pfizer efficacy against infection uh, falls to 39% and then as low as 16% for those that have their second shots in January. Which is so strange timing. It's fading off. Yeah, yeah. It's strange timing that the FDA would approve it as we're seeing the efficacy of these shots just going way down. It, well, what it means is that we've got the third shot coming, the fourth shot coming. The forever vaccine. A recent Oxford study, this was Oxford University, shows Pfizer's efficacy against symptomatic infection almost halved in four months. Mm -hmm. And so you've got a an Israeli computational biologist who comments on that particularly. He says, if it weren't for what seems to be a waning effect we wouldn't be seeing such high numbers. Again, we're going back to the, the context of Israel, the fourth wave, and the prime minister there, and the new prime minister, not Bibi. This is Naftali Bennett, said 
paradoxically, the most vulnerable groups right now, and again, he's speaking about the Israeli population, are those who've been inoculated with two doses and have yet to receive a third. They're going around with a sense they're protected. They don't understand. The second dose erodes over time against the Delta strain. You know what I've found, Dave? I mean, there's a simple way that's not political to hopefully not get sick. You can't control everything. Avoid sick people. Stay away from them. It, 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 it took me a year and a half to come up with that that slogan, but it's true. Just just avoid sick people. And a lot of times that can be somebody who's had the virus who has no idea that they're infecting everybody that they see. Okay, so, you know, you talked about, uh, and again, I keep going back to this uh, CFR report uh, in foreign affairs, the forever virus. They understand that there are more reasons than one to have a virus that doesn't really go away. Yeah, and I, th- I think one. I want to say one more thing about you know the fourth wave in Israel and, and this notion of who should be getting the vaccine and, and and the third shot and all of that. World Health Organization chief scientist in the last ten days says that booster shots aren't needed. Right. So I mean, and I go, okay. So what science are we talking about? It kind of reminds me of Alistair McIntyre's book, which was titled "Who's Justice? Which Rationality?" Because there's there's kind of a a strange dynamic. Who science? Which mathematics? It, and there, there's a back and forth between what what theme are we are we talking about the CDC now? Are we talking about the World Health Organization now? Are we talking about Pfizer scientists now? Are we talking about the Israeli Health Department now? Who are we talking about? And 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 we're talking about credentialed MDs. We're talking about credentialed PhDs who are studying the science. Not all the conclusions are similar. No, we don't need a third shot. Yes, we do need a third shot because the efficacy is waning and we can measure in antibodies the efficacy, which has already waned, which means we have a huge part of our population, which is again vulnerable. The question for me is when somebody really wants me to do something, I have to determine why they really want me to do something. Reminds me of the Shakespeare quote. I'm probably going to misquote it, but it methinks they protest too much. You know, it's like, why? Why do they want me to do it so badly? Two things, two things that I'd love to say here. First is that the forever virus, the forever crisis is perfect cover for a wide range of non-COVID public policy initiatives, right? So we've seen this before. The forever war in the Middle East created cover similarly for all kinds of spending that otherwise would have been unthinkable. Certainly it would have been contentious, Mm. right? So get used to, get used to the forever COVID crisis. Get used to it. And perhaps it's only coincidentally so, but fiscal initiatives, fiscal initiatives up to and including universal basic income, they're on the table. They're on the table in response to wave four, wave five, wave six, wave seven, or what have you. Politicians never let a crisis go to waste, whether it's real or not real. The crises we've seen over a 50-year period You'd say opportunity is opportunity. You remember what Ian McCavity used to say? Oh, I love it. I, I tell the kids this all the time. Politics. Poly, meaning many. Ticks, meaning blood-sucking creatures. <laughs> and, and I can't help but think of there. There is an, a, this notion of, hey, this is a real crisis. Yeah. But well, COVID's a real deal. Uh, you got it. I know. Yeah. I, know. I mean, you've had it. It's like, no, I, I don't can, like losing my taste. No, I can tell yeah. you it's not fun. I yeah. can tell you that when you can't taste bacon or bourbon anymore, right. life sucks. Or when wine tastes like it's rotten. You love wine. All hey, wine has you, gone bad. Okay. Again, so that we don't sound partisan. No, no what right, I'm saying moder- is 
if you never imagined modern monetary theory gaining traction, you just don't know how that gets done because it's an absurd idea. Right. There is an existential threat which changes the character of the conversation. It changes the debate on the issue of financial conservatism versus fiscal largesse. Yeah, because we started practicing modern monetary theory under Trump. So don't we, tell me it's... We, uh, we did, but we yeah. get to continue it. We okay. get to continue it and continue it with confidence, without question... Because we have something that's driving the emotional aspect of our decision-making, which is, yeah, but what if? This could go from bad to worse. We've had three waves. Now it's four. Now it's five. What are we going to do? People can't work. we got to solve the problem. And there will always be the cavalry. Again, this, this is a D.C. cavalry. This is a Fed cavalry. They are willing to step in if something's not functioning according to the way they think it should be. As long they, as the dollar holds up, if you can throw money at something, that money still has to have value. It seems to me, isn't there an end game to this? I mean, when we came off the gold standard 50 years ago and the dollar just became a free-floating currency uh, as far as dropping, it yeah. only it didn't float, it sank over 90% of its value. Well, this is why a month ago I quoted Michael Pettis. Um, teaches finance in China. You regularly see him featured in, in the Financial Times. He's been on our program a couple times. But he says, you know, to be quite clear, modern monetary theory works. It does work. But if you stick around, you then get to see what the cost is. And yes, it costs you your currency, whether it's some partial value of the currency or the currency itself. What he's implying is, of course it works. You can spend as much money as you want. You can print it out of nothing. But ultimately, there's a price to pay, and it probably is in currency stability. Um, so modern-day politics, <laughs> modern-day politics, I think the reality is that modern-day politics cannot be effective without a crisis of some sort. Yeah, modern-day politics can't be effective without a crisis of some sort. Well, neither do uh, media doesn't work without a crisis. Have you noticed breaking news is really just about everything all the time? Right. It, it's it's infused with a certain urgency. And unless it's crisis oriented, nobody's paying attention. Right. <laughs> People would much rather watch sports or, you know, walk the dog or something. Um, walking the dog, I do think, is better than wagging the dog, just for the record. No, but so the first thing is that, yes, the forever virus, the forever crisis is a policy opportunity. It's a policy opportunity. And I'm not saying it was crafted for that reason. I'm saying it coincidentally, if nothing else, it coincidentally is an opportunity. The second thing I wanted to say is, is that at this point, you've got Pfizer executives probably who don't need Xanax anymore. They can stop taking it. Concerns about profits, concerns about earnings, they're gone, right? right. For the period of time where boosters are needed to keep the vaccinated vaccinated. And that's so it's funny. forever profits, forever profits with no liability. That bothers me what you just said because this is an unending cycle and again this is according to the israeli research which would say the efficacy of what you had it was good six months ago it's not so good today it's losing efficacy as you go so you're living with confidence and, th and this again this comes back to why are we talking about shifts in mood because the markets are driven off of this stuff mm -hmm. right and if you are in that class of people who are unmasked and running around like you've got your life back what the israeli document would say what their research would say is the efficacy of the jab 
It's already gone. So it's an unending cycle. The Israeli of research is saying that this is an unending cycle. Of fear and panic. But but God made the <laughs> no, body. No, no, of fear and dependence. Uh, okay, but God made the body to actually build natural antibodies. It seems to me like that's far more effective than the Pfizer jab. I haven't read a lot on this, but what little I have read is that the natural antibodies, this is the most recent studies, and again, this is going to change as time progresses, but that natural antibodies had not degraded at the eight-month mark. Hmm. So you're already you know, four to six months in on an inoculation, and it's losing its efficacy. If you've had it, you have something that's, at least at eight months, quite valuable. And maybe that changes, right? Time will tell. If that fades, well, and you're not a you're not a skeptic on COVID. You you know that it's real. No, it hurts. It's real. I know, but you can call me a big pharma skeptic. You can call me a big pharma skeptic. I don't see a whole lot of difference between the profit hunger of the military industrial complex and the profit hunger of the pharmaceutical industrial complex. The boosters are are glorious for Moderna and Pfizer profits. I mean, if you just want to count the money, if you for a minute think that this is somehow balderdash on my part, I want you to sit in on Pfizer's most recent quarterly report. You listen to you listen to the team talk about the direct benefit of the shots to the bottom line and then project forward earnings on the basis of the boosters. Right. So let's talk about immunity. How long are they immune from legal ramifications? See, that's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking the virus actually is perfect for immunity for the company as far as lawsuits go. Uh, and th- this includes J&J. This is, I didn't mean to leave them out. That probably more than anything keeps me cautious, right? Because they maintain a blanket legal immunity until 2024. How about the, how about the FDA? That's indefinite. They've got sovereign immunity, can't be sued for any adverse effects from the inoculation. But you've got blue skies from here to 2024 in terms of jab this, jab that. You know, in a normal five to 10 year process for vetting, figuring out what the implications are of a drug rollout, this is typical for the pharma giants because, Kevin, their ass is on the line legally, but not this time. You've got a blanket legal immunity. And the ability to continue, number three, jab number four, jab number five, I personally like the accountability that comes with legal risk. When you displace that risk with revenue unattached moral to hazard. risk. Moral hazard. It's another form. You can see what modern capitalism creates. And I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that it's a miracle. I think it might be a monster. And it is similar to opening up the possibility of moral hazard. There's all kinds of things that happen when there's not a balance in the equation, right? And and I don't think there's a balance here. The blanket immunity, blanket legal immunity is danger to me. That's danger to me because I've got some suspicions, and I could be wrong about this. I mean, someday, 20 years from now, when I finally grow up, if I'm grown up in 20 years, maybe I'll have a little more maturity. I'll be able to say, no, 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 I, I, I appreciate the science that was done. I appreciate this. But I am I'm a bit of a skeptic. And I love the fact that the normal cycle includes a huge amount of research and development and basically unlimited liability. I want to go back to this forever concept before you wrap up, because it seems to me like if a person could look forward, if they were in Afghanistan and could look forward and see just how vulnerable that system was to U.S. involvement, they might have been able to make different decisions and not been so vulnerable. I'm I'm not saying, I'm not trying to judge, but we have this forever virus thing. 
But is it really forever or who benefits? We have the forever vax, continue jab after jab after jab. We have, you know, like you said, the forever U.S. involvement in countries that just can't hold together without it. But we have this forever fed bailout. This is a financial program mainly. And for the person who can look ahead and say, wait a second, what if forever isn't forever? What if at some point the dependence on forever, the forever gets retracted? How vulnerable am I? And the question that I would have, Dave, is to every listener, have you done what it takes to not be vulnerable to the forever not being forever? You know, so many things that we talk about in this commentary bridge into social, economic, political, geopolitical, monetary. You think, well, how does this all fit together? Ultimately, the reason why we're talking about the fragility of mood is that it is the defining factor in market pricing. And mood, positive or negative, as we said last week, swings asset prices hard, one direction or the other, to much higher levels or to much lower levels. And, you know, Right now, we've got divergences increasing. We've got breadth deteriorating. We've got valuations reaching for the sky. And, and I'm reminded of John Kenneth Galbraith's quote from The Great Crash. He said, and so on to the moment of mass disillusion in the crash, this last, it will now be sufficiently evident, it never comes gently. It's always accompanied by a desperate and largely unsuccessful effort to get out. The least important questions are the ones most emphasized. What triggered the crash? This is not very important, for it's in the nature of a speculative boom that almost anything can collapse it. Any serious shock to confidence can cause sales by those speculators who have always hoped to get out before the final collapse, but after all possible gains from rising prices have been reaped. Their pessimism will infect those simpler souls who had thought the market might go up forever but who now will change their minds and sell. You've been listening to the McIlvaney Weekly Commentary. I'm Kevin Oreck along with David McIlvaney. You can find us at McIlvaney.com, M-C-A-L-V-A-N-Y.com. And you can call us at 800-525-9556. This has been the McIlvaney Weekly Commentary. The views expressed should not be considered to be a solicitation or a recommendation for your investment portfolio. You should consult a professional financial advisor to assess your suitability for risk and investment. Join us again next week for a new edition of the McIlvaney Weekly Commentary.